Welcome back to Money and Meaning, stories of unlocking the potential of global markets for impact. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. This week, our guest is Joy Anderson, one of the pioneers of the gender lens investing movement. Joy is an impact investor, a historian, and a all-around compelling thought leader in the field. She's the, the founder and president of the Criterion Institute, which is a leading think tank focused on using the power of markets to create social and environmental good. And in that role, she has helped shape the field of impact investing over the last 20 years. She's been involved in too many social impact organizations to name, but a few include Village Capital, the Unreasonable Institute, and Echoing Green. And she was named one of the 100 most creative people in business by Forbes. I want to mention that during our conversation, Joy and I touch upon some of the disheartening statistics around gender-based violence and how it's become a, a focus of their work at Criterion Institute, in case we have any listeners who would prefer to skip this conversation. The conversation mostly focuses on gender lens investing, including the, the history, the evolution, and, and what Joy sees as the future of the space. So with that, let's jump into the conversation. Joy, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. You have a somewhat non-traditional background for the field of, of investing. Tell me about how you get into this work. Well, I mean, by non-traditional, I mean, I think it's a pretty normal path. I started as a high school teacher, taught in Brooklyn, New York for about a decade, <laughs> got a PhD in 19th century American history. In my mind, those two things prepare you for a life in finance. <laughs> um, actually, the history piece in particular has been useful as somebody, you know, a lot of my, the last 20 years of my career has really been focused on uh, it kind, of, kind of sounds wonky, but building fields, right? Sort of changing how a whole body of people think about things. And um, and so being trained as a historian of a PhD in 19th century American history, I am one to say you, you can, as a historian, tell the date that we made this crap up. So it does kind of put things in perspective. I remember when I was first with Tim Frenlick and Kevin Jones, and we were still we were first launching Good Capital, which was the investment fund that I helped build. And as we were launching Good Capital, I remember those those endless questions of like, but sweetie, that's just not how finance works. And having that history background is just like no, dude, that's just how it's worked for the last five minutes. Historically, it hasn't always worked that way. The rules in finance constantly evolved. And that's what I got so excited about innovative finance, impact investing, whatever you want to call it, that we were really examining the rules of the system, how they work. How can you rethink them? How can you do new math? How can you, well, what I work on is how can you change how power works within the system? Yeah, while you're saying that, I was thinking of of Milton Friedman's shareholder primacy work, which uh, you know has only been around since the '70s, but feels like such a such an ingrained part of our financial system. Yes. So you're you're saying that that having that that uh, historian background allows you to see the threads in the evolution of of the systems that we're working within. It also lets us. I mean, again, it, as somebody who works on systemic injustice. It also shows us that some of the injustice has been around for a very long time, even if our current financial markets haven't. So how do we put those two together? 
So what is gender lens investing? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so just, just a little bit of history. Gender lens investing was really coined as a phrase about 12 years ago or so. And it was, it's not a new idea. People had been investing in women-owned businesses, whether they were high-growth businesses or, or micro-businesses. They had been investing, paying attention to women on boards, and you know, there had been boycotts of you know, things like you know, Nestle's and baby formula. There had been gender-oriented shareholder activism that had been going on forever, right? This is not really a new idea to pay attention to gender. But there were a set of disparate efforts. So one group working on clean cook stoves and somebody else working on high-growth tech companies led by women. And there wasn't a way to see those two as connected. So all the gender lens investing is, is a kind of umbrella framework, an umbrella framing that says we're all talking about gender, Mm -hmm. right? We're talking about the power dynamics between all genders, right? Between the genders, we're talking about how, you know, this sort of relationship between genders is so much about how the world works and our day-to-day experience. It it is one of the things along with race and, and other issues that defines a, a lot of how we experience the world. And so it was a, a way of bringing that together. And, and therefore, we could come up with frameworks, amplify each other's thinking, um, have a more holistic piece. So, so that was really, so gender lens investing is, is really nothing more than that umbrella. Um, and then we all have different takes on what it really means to be investing with a gender lens. So you mentioned both corporate policy, like having women in leadership roles and something like clean cook stoves, where it's a, a product or service that is improving the, the lives of, of women around the world. Mm-hmm. Would those be the, the two major pillars within, within gender lens or are there other ways in which it, it, yep. it shows up? So um, a, couple, a couple of ways to see this. If you're looking at investing in a company and assessing what is the company's impact on gender, in general, you look at three things. You look at workplace equity, right? How are workers treated within the company and the supply chain? The second is looking at um, the products and services, right? I mean, how are the products and services designed to be able to create a better world, And in this case, I'm going to say for women and girls, because that's often how that's framed. But I'll put a little asterisk on that. So products and services that are better for women and girls, and then access to capital, right? Is money moving to businesses that are led by women? Um, I do want to, in this asterisk world, it's a little bit more than an asterisk. For ease and everybody kind of being comfortable most of the conversations about gender are talked about as women or women and girls. I want to be really clear. Gender is not the same thing as women. Gender is about the power dynamics between all genders. Gender is a cultural construction. 
It is about a set of norms, expected behaviors, assigned identities. That is how gender works within the world. And what's important about that is because of who we are in the world and, and how we engage, we've got a bunch of ideas about like what women are and what men are and what those boundaries are and what does it mean to fit in to those norms. And it's really important, I think, particularly for investors to recognize that those are social constructions that are constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And it is not a fixed category. And in fact, you know, one of the great things in my mind about today's world is the ability to have a broader spectrum and to, to have less fixed identities less commitment to raising you to be a man and raising me to be a woman and making sure that we're fitting within those boundaries. Almost all experiences of sort of injustice based on gender comes because somebody is stepping out of those norms mm-hmm. and not quote unquote behaving. So we want to make sure that as we're looking at gender, we're not making sure that we're getting women to behave. For example, People say this to me all the time. They're like, my women aren't repaying their loans faster. As if somehow, (laughs) because there's some data points that say women repay microfinance loans with faster rates, that that becomes default and expectation that women should always do that. And if they don't, they're somehow disappointing us. Right. Similar to, well, women raise children. There is a pattern in the world that women are more likely to have the primary caregiving responsibilities within a family. Some of that is women's choice. Some of that is not. And the question is, how do we make sure that we're pushing on those norms, interrogating them, looking at them, not assuming that they're fixed? It's a little gender one-on-one. No, I, I appreciate it. I mean, it's, it's important to understand that it, it's such a complex sociological yeah. structure. And I, I'm wondering, what, how does that, to bring it back to like an investment lens, how, how do you incorporate something with that much complexity into uh, an investment decision? Well, that's a great question because in my mind, There's one way to look at the sort of workplace equity, products and services that benefit women and girls, access to capital. A lot of that is counting women. How many women Mm -hmm. bought this product? How many women got capital? But the the more sophisticated approaches that are emerging are looking at, for example, your investment thesis. You're investing your your fund manager and as a fund manager you are prioritizing let's make it um, about this is a particular moment in time in july of 2020 where thinking about how do we finance technologies that support the ability to work at home becomes critical right now we don't think about online technologies like zoom as gendered right they're not a product or service for women or girls And yet, understanding what is the future of working at home? What does that look like? 
And how is that gendered? Mm-hmm. Right? Right now, it is extraordinarily gendered because we have found it very convenient, particularly in, in you know some parts of the world more than others, where if women are staying home, well, lo and behold, they can also provide childcare while they're working. Who doesn't do this, right? That's just doable. Well, of course it's not, right? Mm-hmm. But you could actually think about a way to design online technologies that goes out to the future and says, I think women are going to continue to stay home and continue to care for children while they are on technologies. And I'm going to design the software, think about the product, move in that direction. Or actually, I think women are going to re-enter the workforce and we're going to recognize that women's value in the workforce is huge. And therefore, we should figure out what we're going to do about daycare so that women can actually effectively enter the workforce again. That's a different bet. So thinking about those two is having a scenario about the future that says, where are the gender patterns headed? And how do I, as an investor, whether I'm investing in public equities or I'm investing in a startup or I'm investing in municipal bonds, all of those would be in different ways shaped by my picture of the future, Mm -hmm. right? Finance at some fundamental level is about making bets on the future. Nobody makes money in the present. We only make money because we were right about the future that we bet on. And so one really important way to think about investing with a gender lens is to question your assumptions about the future. We know that gender patterns have changed over the last 75 years. They could change into the future. They will change into the future. They are changing every day. And so the question is, how do I predict that future? Mm -hmm. You you mentioned Zoom because it's we're recording this in mid-July 2020, and we've all spent way too much time on Zoom for the last four months uh, during the, the pandemic. Um, it, it, at Criterion, you, you recently published a report on the investment risks of gender-based violence during an emergency. Do, what are some of the gendered implications of, a, of an emergency like the, the pandemic? And how does that tie into investment risk? So... Right now, in the midst of, you know, we're in the midst of this pandemic, and in all emergencies, always in emergencies, gender-based violence escalates every time. Um, I think the death rates doubled in the UK over the last couple months. Wow. As gender-based violence goes up in the midst of a pandemic, there is solid research that shows that that increases political risk, right? The stability of the country. Uh, You could think Mm -hmm. about it as a friend of mine once compared it to cartels. The general sense that you could beat the crap out of somebody when you want to is a sign that the social structure is falling apart. And the level of domestic violence that is happening right now is, is off the charts, in part because, you know, people are at home together and women can't escape or men. Men are also victims of gender-based violence, but for the large part, women can't escape the situation that they're in. And so if it was bad before, it's worse now. And so the investment risk around that is a few. One is 
back to the what technologies are you investing in that look at how people work at home? If you are not paying attention to the reality of gender-based violence in looking at the safety measures around whatever is your technology, it means that over time into the future or now, you could have significant reputational risks in terms of your ability to handle privacy in particular or, or, or issues around safety. The second piece is women's ability to re-enter the workforce when they are confined to situations of abuse. As gender-based violence goes up, women's economic empowerment goes down. And so we're looking critically at sectors that rely on women's labor, where women are a vital part of the sector, healthcare, for example, right? The ability for the healthcare sector to continue to be resilient is tied to gender-based violence because of the volume of women that are in that particular sector, right? Healthcare is actually one of the highest incidents of gender-based violence across industries, agriculture being top of the list, right? Anytime that women are isolated. So, I mean, at some point I find myself going through this and thinking, we're talking about gender-based violence. You know, it's a, this is not a fun topic. You know, one in three women experience gender-based violence within their lifetimes. That's real. So one point is to say, that's material globally. Right. One in three women mm -hmm. experience sexual violence in their lifetimes. That affects all of our lives. Right. So we think of that actually as a market risk. So similar to climate. Right. Climate doesn't happen in companies. You know, the climate risk is a market risk that affects all companies. There are gender patterns like gender based violence or other things connected to gender norms that sit in the world as market risks that affect our ability. And so a company is either responding or they're not. So, and here's a scenario around how a company, you know, how gender-based violence affects your investments. Gender-based violence is a huge problem right now and largely it's tolerated. Me Too was actually about a change in tolerance. It didn't change. It wasn't an increase in gender-based violence. It was a decrease in tolerance of gender-based violence. So where companies are actually at risk in large part is if culture changes and gender-based violence declines, then the companies that weren't able to adapt, the companies who weren't able to be more inclusive to respond, to stop having it be okay for there to be evening gatherings among workers at strip clubs, right? That still mm -hmm. happens, right? Maybe not as much as it did 20 years ago, but it still happens. Those companies are now under greater risk continuing as culture change happens to not adapt, right? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, this is actually not cool as everybody goes, what? You've done what? How does that happen, right? So as tolerance shifts, 
the risks of gender-based violence um, to an investor go up, which I actually think is a really um, good way to think about it. I ask people pretty often, how would you invest if you believed your philanthropy was working? If the social change movements that we were all investing in, that we were moving forward, actually worked, what does that world look like? And are you investing to capture the benefits in that future? To that point, you have been one of the leading thought leaders and, and founders in this space. Take me back to those early conversations. What did you expect from the investment community? And, and, and now in 2020, has it worked? Or, or is it at least moving in the, you know, the direction that you expected? Wow. It's um, a great question. I, I was struck by the question of what did I expect? Because, you know, back in, in those days, I remember very nice, those days, all of 10 years ago, right? <laughs> I remember a very nice sort of senior gentleman in impact investing would say, oh, Joy, I really like women. I really do. I care so much. I like my wife and my kid. I really <laughs> care about women. But goodness, if you ask us to invest in women, impact investing is already so hard and it would cut our deal size in half. Like, oh, for the love of God, grow up. <laughs> Right. Like I'm not, not asking you to cut the world in half. But so early on, I learned and I still learn today over and over again that when people because we live in the world of bias, because we live in a world where racial bias and gender bias and other forms of structural inequities are how we sit in the world. We, we see the world through those lenses. Gina Davis has an amazing statistic. She runs an institute on, on gender and, and the media. And the statistic is that in cartoons, family cartoons, when you actually have an opportunity to draw the people, this is not a binder issue, crowd scenes in family cartoons are made up of 18% women. Wow. Isn't that real? I mean, it's not, you know, a... Mitt Romney problem of I have binders and I can't find more women. This literally is your opportunity to draw. And we draw the world in a way that reflects our understanding of privilege, whether that's about race, or class or gender or whatever. We draw the world. And as investors, that's where I think gender lens investing is most important because we have the power as investors to draw the world. We define where the money should go. We define what's valuable. We point things in directions and say, you're growing, you're not, you're valuable, you're not. And making sure that we check our privilege and our bias in how we're making those decisions. So for example, just easy, you know, early things, we would be talking to people who were really would love to invest in women-led businesses. It seemed like a great idea. Yeah, but I like to travel with my entrepreneurs. And I just don't know if I want to sit on an airplane with a woman for five hours. Like, literally, well, I'd love to invest in a woman entrepreneur, but what if she gets pregnant? I mean, literally, conversations, these are conversations had at accelerators in impact investing. With impact investors who are presumably focused on, on social impact. With impact investors 
who, who tell me they like their wives. <laughs> and so there's a kind of, there's a sense of, and I, I don't mean to be snarky about it. I, I just want to name, we all have these biases, right? We've decided that venture capital is the most valuable kind of capital in the world, despite all performance, despite all objective measures, right? <laughs> we've decided that venture capital is the benchmark that everybody should mark against. And let's face it, venture capital is gendered male, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's what, 3%? 3%? Three percent of the capital goes to women-led ventures, largely owned by by men of privilege, and and so the question is, and and I I'm I'm open to all approaches. Is you go in and you change venture capital and you make it either exactly the way it is, more open to a broader number of entrepreneurs. It's a fine goal. Option two is you change venture capital, and so that you're. Um, this is what you know we were in part trying to do in good capital, but you change venture capital to make it operate in a way that you think will be more just or you say why are we so obsessed with venture capital why don't we just look at smart forms of debt revenue rights other things that are not venture capital and that's where this is an example of how privilege works right we become accustomed to the things that are privileged to whoever the dominant population is that become equal to powerful. And we stop checking that. And if we invest according to our biases, sometimes we will do just fine because the world is bloody unjust and it's not changing fast enough. So if we invest according to our biases, we might do just fine. Or the social movements that we celebrate are gonna kick our ass. And we're going to find ourselves holding companies that can't adjust to a new normal. You mentioned that you're open to all approaches of tackling this challenge, but it sounds like you're you're more in favor of of alternative deal structures than traditional venture capital and, and other investment mechanisms as as a way of of creating impact. So, building on this question, I mean, I, I think why structure is so important. Um, And we actually look at the practice of gender lens investing as including three elements. So before I sort of named workplace equity, you know, products and services that women benefit women and girls and access to capital as three lenses. But they don't tell you how to do that. Right. You don't just go invest in women. You structure deals. Right. So we look at three things that need to change that that. If you're going to do gender lens investing, you do three things. First of all, as I've just been alluding to, you eliminate bias in your analysis. So the first piece is really looking at your investment thesis, your underlying analytics. How are you valuing the world? How are you valuing a deal? How are you looking at risk? How are you looking at opportunity? So that's the first thing. The second thing is to actually look at relationships and power dynamics within structures. Where are the places where, um, and we've looked at this extensively in our in our work in Australia, in the Pacific Islands, um, at as we're investing in a company grounded in a community, 
is there a way to structure the deal so that a civil society organization has a different power dynamic within that conversation, right? If you're working on renewable energy and the civil society organization is actually the partner that makes that work, can you structure the deal so that they have real power within that structure? So we look at power dynamics within structures. And then the third is looking at what is valued within the processes whose knowledge in particular is valued. We live in a world where financial knowledge is extraordinarily valuable, right? If you want to do impact investing, if you want to do gender lens investing, the first box you have to tick is, do you know enough about finance? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to argue with that. We have a problem, though, which is, do you know enough about gender? Do you know enough about the world? We don't vet people and say, oh, my gosh, he's such a doofus about the world. We say, well, he doesn't seem to know the terms. He doesn't really know how to structure a deal. So how do we look at the processes and in particular, whose knowledge is valued within that? Um, So one of the big things we're pushing on right now is and, and this is maybe tipping out to the future is we're working with a a few different governments on coming up with what we describe as process metrics. What do we want to see in the day-to-day processes or processes, depending on what country you live in? So what do you want to see in the day-to-day processes that shows that they are paying attention to power dynamics, that they're checking their bias? How do we look at the actions of investors Those first three categories, access to capital, workplace equity, was all about the company. The investor didn't have to do anything different. And I think in the end, for us really to evaluate, is somebody a gender lens investor, is about their processes. Instead of counting the number of women, as you put it earlier. Right. So I don't care how many women you have in your portfolio. You know, you could actually have a really crap debt product and you could have a ton of women in your portfolio. (laughs) You haven't made the world better for anybody. And so I want to know, are you designing appropriate investment vehicles? Are you are you questioning what's really needed? Are you checking your own privilege and assessing your own bias? Mm -hmm. What do you think is the biggest challenge facing the, the field of gender lens investing right now? And and I guess the second part of that, what are you working on at at Criterion, and does it does it tie? I imagine it yeah. ties into what you're seeing as challenges in the field. Well, and I, actually, I was going to exactly answer it that way because I mean, Criterion okay. is I have this amazing privilege to lead a think tank, and so while as a social change organization we have our own challenges, I am very aware that we don't have assets under management, and we don't face the pressures that investment managers do every day. So we get to push on the questions of imagination. So I do want to start with, for the people who are in the trenches right now, putting deals out, they would describe the biggest challenge is still, I think, whatever all of us talk about in impact investing, even broadly, is, is there enough money moving, right? Is the capital, you know, all, all intent aside, are people bloody writing checks? And um, in gender, the, where that shows up is people say, well, there just isn't enough data, or I can't find enough women. Like, oh, goodness gracious me. 
pull it together, go out and do your job, find the opportunities, get enough data, you can do it. Right. So there's still a people put up barrier after barrier after barrier, many of which are in their minds um, to be able to say, can I really do this? So I, I do always question the extent to which why we say we can't move capital is our own constraints, not others. Um, and particularly when we're talking about areas of bias like race and gender, you really need to check Am I not moving capital? Because in the end, I don't trust that person of color. I don't trust that woman. It's not what I know. They're not my drinking buddies. How do you check that that bias? So I think there's a huge question around, is enough capital moving? I, I would say our push, and we've alluded to this a few times, so Criterion's mission is about expanding who sees themselves as able to use finance as a tool for social change. Our invitation as an organization is really to the social change organizations that don't see themselves as able to shape systems of finance because what I think we lack in innovative finance is knowledge of the world. I think we lack grounded knowledge about how things actually work. There are a good number of gender lens investors who don't know that much about gender. Their intent is good, and I'm not I'm not saying that's a problem. You know, I think you can invest with a gender lens, but at some point you have to rely on an expertise because just because I'm a woman, it doesn't mean I know how to analyze gender. It's, I have my experience to rely on. You, Alex, could actually be a brilliant gender analyst. It's it's a skill set, mm-hmm. not an identity. And so we often say, I have three women on my staff at my investment firm. And I'm like, yeah, do any of them have a skill set to analyze the gender patterns in the market in which you're working? What's their contextual knowledge about how to identify gender patterns within that market? So for us, a lot of what we're working on is how do we build those bridges between the people who have knowledge about gender and those who work in finance, similar to what happened in in climate and environmental investing, right? We built bridges between World Wildlife Fund and EDF and and the world of finance. We've done some of that, you know, we've done that in some safe ways, right? We've got McKinsey's department on corporate leadership has bridged with its department on investing, that was maybe not the biggest stretch that we needed to make in the world. <laughs> but so how do we bridge to social justice organizations that are working on women right, women's rights and bring mm-hmm. their voice into this movement? So that's what we focus on. So I, I know you're a historian, but I'm going to ask for some uh, prognostication. We're, we're about 10 years into this, this movement, at least known as gender lens investing. There was, yeah. It existed in other forms before that. Um, what's next for the the next 10 years? Is it, is it raising awareness like you've talked about of, of biases and is it, is it continuing to build the business case like we're, like we've done in, in impact investing at large? What do you see as, as happening over the next decade? I'm going to go with, we're going to rock this shit. Like that's, that's (laughs) my, that's my prognosis. I like that answer. Well, and and I do mean it. Like, I think this is a really critical time as we are positioning 
we are looking out to the next 10 years and looking at a recovery from the current crisis that we're in. Um, but in some ways, this is just revealing the crisis that we've been in for a very long time. It's just mm -hmm. gotten, you know, extraordinarily accentuated. And for me, I think it really matters of where are we, are we building a new future that is focused on better, more just structures? And within that, many things matter, including gender. And I think there's a real drumbeat behind that right now. I think there's lots of people talking about it. I think there's momentum to it. And there's some kick butt leaders who are pushing this. So I think it's a great time to be doing this. You're optimistic. I like that. I'm the pixie of possibility. <laughs> Is there anything that I haven't asked about gender lens investing that would be important for somebody new to the topic to, to know? It is as complicated as it appears, and that's okay. Right? People encounter, oh, you want me to think about gender? Wow, you want me to think about gender and race at the same time? Oof. You want me to think about gender, race, and climate simultaneously? Yes, we want you to do that. We even want you to not think about genders as just men and women, but a, a broader spectrum of experiences of gender. We want you to really embrace the complexity, just like you were going to encounter, oh, I don't know, any new market that you didn't understand. You would revel in the, the data nuances and the complexity and the little things that you figure out where there are opportunities. And so I think often I hear from folks, oh, it's just too complicated. Could you simplify it for me? Give me a tick, tick box that I can put at the end of my report and then I'll be all set. And that's just not like, that's not the fun part of investing. The fun part of investing is the messy part when we get in all the complexity and we figure out something that nobody else has figured out. That's what I think is fun about gender. It's a great answer. Thank, thank you, Joy, for taking the time to, to speak with me. I, I really enjoyed learning more about, about the topic. And always grateful for all that SOCAP does. Thanks for listening to the conversation with Joy Anderson of the Criterion Institute. I have already found myself reflecting on a few of the, the topics that Joy brought up during the conversation, so hopefully you found some valuable wisdom in there as well. As always, we, we love when you share the podcast with, with friends, family that you think might enjoy the conversation. I love seeing it pop up on social media if you're, you're willing to share it with your networks. You can get in touch with me at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com if you have any guest ideas, any topic ideas, any questions for me that, that I can answer. I'm happy to do that via email. And as always, you can find out more about the, the topics discussed, in this case, gender lens investing, at our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net, where we'll link to resources for, for anyone who wants to learn more, and including a, a number of resources that Criterion Institute has provided for us. We have some really interesting conversations in the pipeline, including Sasha Dichter from 60 Decibels and Margaret Trilly from Impact Assets. So 
hopefully you'll you'll stay tuned for those discussions and we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode.